At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. This is a special Best of Caller Questions Invest Talk compilation program. Remember, the Invest Talk phone lines never close. Please call with questions 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART. They will be played and answered on an upcoming Invest Talk podcast. Welcome to Invest Talk, above average investing for the average investor. We try to bring you useful information and answer any questions you might have, as long as they're financial. 888-99-CHARTER is our number, 888-992-4278. How about if we go to Bill in Livermore? How are you doing, Bill? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. You? I'm great. I'm really doing well. My question was, what's the difference between a registered investment advisor and a certified financial planner? Very good question, and there is a great big difference. A registered investment advisor is a guy who manages portfolios. We actually manage money. A financial planner does not manage money. A financial planner manages every piece of aspect of your financial life. In other words, he may suggest you buy life insurance. He'll talk about your medical coverage. He'll talk about your house and what kind of mortgage you have. And maybe you need a refinance or get a different mortgage. And he will talk about you know where you should put your money in this mutual fund or that. And he'll sell you loaded funds. He'll tell you to put them in loads. But he himself does not manage money. A registered investment advisor gets paid taking a small piece of the money he manages, a financial planner usually gets paid in one of two ways. He gets commission on the products he sells, life insurance, house uh, remortgaging a house, he gets a fee for that. He gets a fee for sending you to loaded funds. Okay, But he physically does not manage the money, which an advisor does. We get paid a fee for managing the money. Okay. Thank okay. you for the call. Bye. Hey, Stephen Justin, Bill from Philadelphia here. I got a question about ex-dividends. Say I have a chunk of cash and stock's dividend is coming up. If I put that stock or that cash into that stock the day before the ex-dividend date, ex-dividend date happens, then withdraw the day after, do I get that dividend paid out to me, even though I've only had it in? for about two days or so. Just wondering, uh, hypothetically, I know there's a chance of stock going down during that time and all that, so losing money, but just want to get your thoughts. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Yes, you only have to own that stock into the close before the ex-dividend date. Basically, how it works. So doesn't matter whether you own it for a year before, a month before, a week before, or a day, or even an hour. You can buy it. Or a minute, right? You can buy it right before that ex-dividend date. Now, like you said, the next day, stock's going to go down by a similar amount to that ex-dividend or that dividend amount. And remember, you have to pay taxes on the dividend if it's a taxable account. So there's no free lunch here. 
but know that you don't need to own it for any long period of time. It's just owning it's going into that ex-dividend date. Managing multiple mutual funds, researching professional services, where to put your savings. If it's about money and if it's important to you, we want to know more about it. We're here for you. 888-99-CHART is how to reach Steve or Justin right now on Invest Talk. We're going to go to Chris and Hayward. How are you doing, Chris? I was just curious. You're flipping through the dials and listening to you. I was curious that there's been so much, uh, you know, online infomercials and stuff like that. In fact, I even attended recently a uh, like a teach me to trade type. Um, and I don't know anything about stock. They obviously were, you know, really flashy and had a lot of information. I was curious if I can get your opinion on that kind of stuff. You know, unfortunately, people make it sound like it's super exciting. You can get in and out. You buy it at the bottom, sell at the top, and you could do this, and everybody could do this. Chris, to be honest, it's a lot harder than it seems. It really is. The stock market moves up when earnings increase. That's as simple as that. If you have a company that makes money and it makes more and more money, eventually the stock price will move up. The problem, Chris, is it's not a perfect correlation. In other words, if my earnings go up today, the stock doesn't go up today. Because all of us guys, me included, are looking for next year because I want to be ahead of everybody else. We're all competing with each other. So, Chris, if I can mention just one thing to put in your head. Stock prices move up on earnings. Now, I know you're going to say, and it is true, well, you got stocks that go up all the time that don't have earnings. Yes, that's true. Those are called story stocks. They have a great story. I have the next cure for cancer. The stock will shoot up. Right. But in fact, if they don't come out with that cure for cancer, that stock will shoot right back down and go lower. So that's a story that they don't have it yet, that they're working on it. Earnings actually means I have made money, I am making money, I'm putting it in my pocket, and you as a stockholder, remember you own this company, you have made money. If you don't believe me, look at Microsoft over all its history. It's gone up 10,000% since it started. Thousands and thousands of percent. It's because it's always made money. It has not moved in two years and still makes a lot of money. That's why I mean it's not a perfect correlation. Right, I hear you. That can happen to you. But if you're going to be in this game any length of time, Chris, buy stocks that make money, you'll be a lot happier in the long run. Okay, I appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate the call. You can call right now and be part of the program. Let's hear about what your talking point is. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278, and you can get through right now. In today's world, a variety of factors are affecting the stock markets. Serious investors know building a secure financial future requires hard work and determination. That's why now, more than ever, When it comes to the planning, execution, and maintenance of your portfolio, you need InvestTalk. With total downloads surpassing 50 million, each InvestTalk podcast should be one of your key financial planning and educational tools. InvestTalk is a free download, and hosts Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to provide their unbiased guidance and professional analysis developed from real-time data research and years of investing experience. 24-7, 24-7, rain or shine, during smooth sailing or on rough weather days, the Invest Talk listener line is open and waiting for your questions. You set the agenda. Don't forget to call Invest Talk 888-99-CHART. 
You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Hello, I own a duplex in Tracy, California, and I was just wondering if it would be a good time to sell it or wait until a later date when the interest rates uh, come down. The reason I was thinking of selling it was uh, because the market is high. I was thinking about baking the profit and just letting it sit until house prices come down. I'd like your info on it if you have any views. Thank you. Again, my name is Mark from Tracy, California. Thank you. The Bay Area, this is Tracy, California, is in the Bay Area. And it's certainly going to have a a tougher time than it has over the past couple of decades with the growth of Silicon Valley, et cetera, and more people moving out for cheaper places to live. The Bay Area has been one of the worst housing markets in the country so far over the last, call it 18 to 24 months. And I think that will longer term generally kind of continue. There'll be some mean reversion. Now, eventually they'll find some equilibrium where it makes sense, uh, et cetera. But I think that's many years away. So is it a good time to sell? I'd say yes. Now, will it be harder to sell it a duplex than your traditional single family? Probably because you're look, getting more investors looking at duplexes and that doesn't pencil out as well. So I'm not sure what type of price you might get. But it is a, 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 still a good time to sell. I do think prices will come down over time, but it's not going to be a huge crash. And in fact, it may be coming down and correcting in time as opposed to price, meaning having negative real returns over a long period of time and suddenly the fundamentals kind of right themselves. And that happens a lot as well. That's an underappreciated way that asset prices mean revert or get back to a reasonable valuation is that you have, you have an inflationary environment, prices around it go up, but its prices stay relatively the same. And that's actually what I expect kind of generally to happen with home prices nationwide. Now, the barrier would probably pockets of a little bit more weakness, but that's generally how, to th- how I'm thinking about where real estate prices are going. This isn't 08. We're not going to have a crash. We're more likely to have correction of prices in time, meaning negative real returns on the price of real estate over an extended period of time. And that is how you have some sort of mean reversion within that market. Let's go to David in Chula Vista. How are you doing, David? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you. Uh, I got a question about a local company, the ServiceNow, that's going to be going public soon. Uh-huh. I like what the company does. Haven't uh, got a chance to dive into fundamentals yet. But how long would you generally wait before starting to get involved with something like this? If a company comes out IPO, trying to buy it on the first day is very, very difficult, Dave. Because, you know, that many times if the IPO market's hot, it comes out, they say, well, it's going to be $14 a share, and the first trade is 
18. Yeah. You know, well, wait a minute. Yeah. You and I can't get it at 14. You know, and we're buying it for, from the people who got it at 14. They're selling to us at 18. They've already made a huge profit, and they're out. So, yeah, and then I'm stuck with it at a high point. Exactly. So that's why I tell people, stay away from it. Usually, wait till six months. And this is why, David. After six months, the insiders are now allowed to sell some shares. They are precluded from doing that for about six months. In other words, they have to hold on. The insiders have to hold on to the shares for about six months. Oh, okay. So what you see after about six months, generally speaking starting a little bit before six months is the stock starts trading down back close to its IPO price very often. Very okay, often. that makes sense. I'll, I'll sit tight and then take a look then. Yeah, just keep watching. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. All right, thank you. i got a question for you on mixing your politics with your investing. Uh, you always recommend against that, and I think that's a good recommendation. But a lot of companies go out of their way to make overt political statements. Lots of companies just jumped in there to make big, bold statements. Strikes me that's that's just going to alienate half the population. Whichever side you take, you're going to alienate the other half. I'm just wondering, I think you do want to keep politics out of your investing, but do you want to avoid companies that take overt political stances? Do you think that's a, a factor in how you might choose or avoid companies? Again, thanks for your show. Really appreciate it. Talk to you later. I think that's a great point. Uh, I do agree that the companies that go out of their way to be overtly political uh, does tend to hurt their business overall. Now, it depends on the company as well. If the majority, the vast majority of their customers are already on a certain side of political lines and they decide to also take a stance on that side, that's going to hurt them a lot less than a company that might be kind of split down the middle, like the the general uh, public tends to be. Uh, so it depends on the company. But I agree that when you, you get consistently overly political, it can cause part of your customer base to think about alternatives who, you know, then there's usually alternatives in almost every industry. And so you have seen uh, companies hurt by those things. Target's a good example as of late. Um, and so, you know, this is in a, in a political environment that continues to be divided and increasingly divided. And we don't have a political figure that can unite us. I think it's, it is increasingly fraught. Uh, to go out there and be overtly political. Now, one day, I do think we'll, uh, the country will call us around a central figure that can unite us, but that day is not today. Um, so I like your, your thought process. Um, it, it's, it's more rare. I think a lot of people try to say this happens all the time. It really doesn't. If you go and look about all the public companies, large companies that are out there, it's a small percentage that tend to get overtly political. So, uh, but something to watch for and something to consider, but you have to weigh it against their total customer base and how impactful that really will be. All right. Thanks for the call. You're listening to Invest Talk, everybody. I'm Steve Peasley. We want to answer your questions. Our listener line number is always ready for you. 888-99-CHART. Beginning our experience, we're here to answer your questions.
You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888-99-CHART, 888-99-CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. 888-99 Chart is our number, everybody. You can reach us. We have lines open, 888-992-4278. Let's go to Frank and Blythe. How you doing, Frank? I have a question about where I should be putting my investment dollars. I've got several hundred going into my 401 and about the same amount going into my 457. And then I'm also doing a small monthly amount into a just a brokerage account that I'm playing on the stock market. Should I be switching some of those funds into the Roth IRA? How old are you? 42. Uh, do you have a current Roth IRA? No, I do not. You have a 401k? I have a 401k and a 457. Okay. Are you currently working at the place where the 401k is established? Yes. Okay. So you got to leave it there. The 457, is that a current active 457 account? Yes. So you got to leave both those there. So you really can't do anything with a Roth IRA with those monies. And if you're making too much money on an annual basis, you can't even open up any IRA. So it depends on how much money you're making, Frank. You might be making way too much. You might be one of those rich guys. I wish. (laughs) (laughs) Don't we all wish, okay? 401k and 457 for everybody else. Those are retirement types of accounts. Frank, you're 42. If you're going to open up a retirement account, either an IRA or Roth IRA, it should be probably the Roth IRA, not the regular IRA. But you may be precluded with these retirement accounts you have, and you have to talk to your tax guy or your accountant. Because he knows how much money you're making. And he can tell you, okay, yeah, you can do it. And you can do that like March or just before tax time and open it for this year. Next year, you can open it for the year before. Oh, okay. I can still take the deduction. Correct. Now, the deduction is on a regular IRA. A Roth IRA, you do not. You pay with after-tax dollars. But all the growth that you have over the next years, you never have to pay a tax dollar on anything that grows in that Roth IRA. Okay. I guess I'm kind of looking to as I'm putting money into the stock market into yes. a real stable one. Would I be better off putting those monies that I'm putting into that into the Roth? Probably because you can invest it in the same things. Oh, okay. Let's say your uh, current account is at E-Trade. Right. You can open up a Roth at E-Trade, a Roth IRA. Okay. And, and then you can trade it the same. If I trade within the Roth IRA, is that money is still non-taxable? All non-taxable, yes. That is cool. Okay. All right. That's why I'm thinking, do it. <laughs> you know, it's got some nice advantages. That'd be sweet. Frank, I appreciate the call. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, this is Duncan from New York. Again, thank you for all that you do. I have two lithium companies that I'm at a loss, but after all the education that you've given, it totally makes sense. So as like a tax loss harvesting strategy, I know that we're at like a 10% correction and we can't tell the future, but It's just hard for me to figure out if I sell at the bottom or if I sell at a rally. So do you think there would be a Santa Claus rally for me to sell into? Just wanted to know your insights with that too, or should I just not even hope that there would be a rally and just still sell at a loss? Thank you very much, and have a great day. Bye. Well, the simple answer is, yeah, I do think there's a Santa Claus rally. Uh, Typically, Santa Claus rallies happen when the market is up for the year. And guess what? Even though we've had a pullback since the midsummer, equity prices are generally still higher and money flows consistently in the markets and especially in up years. The opposite happens like last year. Last year, the market was down. You didn't have a sign of cause rally. So that's why I've always said this pullback looked very controlled. If you look at yield spreads, yield spreads aren't winding out to a worrying degree. 
And it was a very controlled rally. It wasn't a massive you know, market puke lower. It was kind of a grind, lower, kind of stair step, natural pullback. So nothing underneath the surface worried me kind of near term. And that's why I said, okay, you get to some major support levels and you get a catalyst like a Fed meeting. Your odds are you get a bounce. Then you get into holiday season, you get a float higher. That's how these things kind of work. That's weird. But, you know, you know, near term markets can move a lot, a lot different than you expect them to simply because of fun flows, money flows that are uh, in a world where it's all about indexing. doesn't matter what the economy is doing. It doesn't matter as much what earnings are. No, it does matter. It just matters less. Because if you're, when you're investing in the indices, you're not even looking at valuations or future earnings growth. It's just automatic. And oftentimes that uh, dominates markets in the holiday season. How do we go to Dave in Burlingame? How are you doing, Dave? Thank you for taking my call, and I love your show. Thank you. Thanks for calling. My question is, I understand how it's important to pay off your mortgage, especially when you're around age 50. My question to you is, would it be a good move to take the money that you have saved in your 401k to pay off your mortgage? I'm currently 47. Okay, would that be a good move or not? No, it would not be, Dave. Why do I say that? The 401k is for your retirement. And the house is also for your retirement. So saying that, you would think, well, it makes sense, does it not? No. I like you to have two different types of assets there, not just all your money in one asset. Okay? I still think it's a great idea to pay off mortgage, pay down mortgage, get those things paid off. But I don't think you should do it with retirement money. That money is uh, it's tax deductible as you put the money in there. And the other, only other tax deductible you have is the mortgage payment, the interest. Not that that's why you should have a mortgage. I don't think you should have a mortgage. I think you should try to pay it down. I would much rather see you take a little extra money every month, and I know it's tough when you're working stiff and you're not making a lot of money and a lot of free money, but I'd much rather say, see you pay 50, 100 bucks a month and use that extra money to pay down that mortgage and continue to fund your 401k. I appreciate your answer and basically leave the 401k alone, mm-hmm. uh, pay, add whatever additional money that you can, whatever you uh, can. to pay it off. You'll I be a surprise, think- Dave, how fast it will take down that mortgage if you're disciplined and do it every month. I appreciate your advice. Thank you for Thanks, taking Dave. my call. I'm Money Manager Steve Peasley, and we're here to help you get better results if we can with your invested dollars. That's our goal. Do you have a question? Check in now, 888-99-CHART ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed a hundred thousand miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own look to your left look to your right it is official no one's got a ride like this there's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage with over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, 
You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888 99CHART, 888 99CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Hey, Invest Talk. I had a question for my parents. They are approaching retirement, and I wanted to get your guys' take on the best time to take Social Security. Um, so at 65, it seems like they'd get 100% of their Social Security. If they were to postpone it to around 70, they'd get 125%. I believe they got some insight from one of their financial friends that it makes the most sense to you know, collect Social Security immediately and start investing it, and it has that room for growth. But, I mean, I feel like my thought process with this might make more sense for them since I think that they would be able to make it until 70 and then be able to collect the maximum benefit then and get that guaranteed income increase versus there's a chance that the you know market could crash if they were to collect Social Security early and invest it. It just seems like you know if you started early enough and were prepared and you wanted to slowly decrease your risk over time, it would make the most sense to, to wait until 70. And then also if you could touch on you know income you know high versus low and how that uh, impacts the Social Security amount that you collect because some calculators online almost make it seem like you know, whether you make a million or, you know, 50,000, you know, there's, there's not a significant change in, in the amount that you would collect if you were to take it at 65 versus 70. And so just to get, you know, another viewpoint on it, I just want to give them good advice because they're going to have to make this decision soon. So I appreciate your guys' help as always. And I'll listen on the show. Bye. Great question. And this is how I, I, I talk to my clients about this because everyone's situation is different. So you have to come at it with different principles, but not dogma. Dogma in this world, investing in uh, financial planning is never good. You always want to be flexible based on each person's situation. So the first thing is health, right? If somebody is not in great health, probably not going to make it past 80, 85, right? Taking that early probably makes more sense. But if uh, all things being equal, if you're in relatively good health, you think you're going to live, you know, maybe probably into your 90s, then waiting longer typically makes sense. Now, that also depends on if you can wait longer. Some people have not saved well enough and do not have the assets to live on until they get to their full retirement age or till 70. Right, they need that income, and they're unable to work, and then they're just gonna have to adjust their lifestyle. But let's say you have good health. Let's say you have a decent amount of assets that you can pull income from. Maybe even a little bit of principal. That's fine, right? I'm not saying you have to. It has to be 100% income. It could be a little bit of principal as well, but enough to live on for a little while and. Get that guaranteed, and that's what's important here, is the guaranteed increase in income that you get with waiting all the way till full retirement age and that 8% increase every year once you do uh, between the full retirement age and age 70. I typically like telling my clients, at the bare minimum, you want to try to push the best you can to get to that full retirement age. I know you said 65. Typically, the full retirement age is closer to 67 now. 
But I would say if you can go to 70. Now, your parents might be seeing is that it's probably against the interest of your of their financial advisor that they wait because what are they going to do? They're going to pull out some money from those accounts to live off for a little while, for a few years, maybe five years until they hit 70 or full retirement age and then start taking their social security. At that point, maybe they drain their retirement accounts less. So there's a little conflict of interest. You want to make sure that they're avoiding. And I worry a bit that their advisor saying that unless once again, there's other two first situations or instances are at play here, right? They're not in good health or they just don't have the assets. So, you know, for us, we have to act in the best interest of our clients. So the best interest for most of our clients is take their nest egg that we're typically managing and draw from it for a little while and get to that as much as you can from social security. Okay, let's go to Jim and Carlsbad. How are you doing, Jim? Uh, the question I had was about the mutual fund versus the exchange traded fund. Mm-hmm. What exactly is the difference between those? Okay, ETFs are fairly new I and mean, there's lots of it's kind of exploding and take a lot of money out of the mutual fund. So this is kind of an interesting thing. The mutual fund has a manager, okay? He may be a large cap mutual fund. He may be a small cap. He may have a discipline that he is employing and he states that in the prospectus. And he says, I'm going to buy large cap stocks. So he goes out and buys those large cap and he manages, buys and sells and he tries to manage that portfolio to make money. A ETF, exchange traded fund, is an unmanaged fund. It follow indexes like the QQQs or the SPYs or it can follow a sector like uh, the insurance sector or the banking sector or oil sector. It could be an ETF that just has those group of stocks in them, but they're not managed at this point. Most of the time they're not managed. They're not managing the ETF. You're just buying that group of stocks and there you go. So one is much more managed than the other. On the other hand, ETFs are much cheaper because they're not managed. It's the cheaper fees than a mutual fund. So ETFs the, are more focused on industry groups then and rather than uh, capital value? Or? And areas of the world, even country-specific sometimes, oh. or just areas of the market, yes. Great. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate the call. Do you have questions about FDIC security, mortgages, money market funds, losses to your retirement plans? Give us a call today, 888-99-CHART. Hey, Steve and Justin. Is there at any point where I would want to go 100% T-bills and bonds just for fixed income? Say a person is, you know, they have a couple million, few million. They just want that safe, steady income. Don't need to really keep up inflation with inflation. Don't really care. Just want that, you know, X amount per month and they're good on living. Would that be a scenario where you would just go 100% to those and bonds, no stocks, nothing else? Look forward to your uh, answer. Thank you so much. Well, good question, but I don't know if I could ever agree with that last part, which is saying, oh, I don't care about inflation. You should always care about inflation because inflation could get out of control. I'm not saying it's going to happen anytime soon, but there's certainly that risk. You don't say you care about inflation now, but if inflation's... 20% think you'll care about inflation? Absolutely you will. And if you're in T-bills earning even 5% now, negative 15% annual real return is pretty bad. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen or anything like that, but just to say this dismiss inflation out of hand, I think is a little disingenuous. Nobody 
is ever going to not care about inflation. So that's really the biggest risk with T-bills and bonds is that inflation will continue to kind of escalate and you'll be stuck in longer dated securities that don't pay enough. Now, certainly T-bills and treasury bonds, your principal safe and you're going to get that yield and maybe that's okay with you and maybe you have other sources of maybe inflation protection. Maybe you have social security, for example, that's COLA adjusted. Maybe you have an annuity or something like that that adjusts for inflation, et cetera. But I think your general question probably has more to do with the amount of risk you should take. And there is a level, I think, for most people, once they amass a certain amount of capital that allows them to, quote unquote, retire, or be financially free, that they should lower their risk substantially, even if their ability or their willingness to take a lot of risk is a lot higher. I've seen that many times. Oh, I'm, I'm a risky investor. Uh, maybe they're entrepreneurs or whatever. They just tend to be riskier. And uh, they're okay being in all equities. But in reality, based on their amount they've massed, they probably don't need to be in all in equities. So that's the way to think about it. And lowering risk can mean different things. can mean just corporate bonds instead of treasuries. could be... Uh, floating rate bonds that will help hedge against inflation. It could be maybe buying some gold as an uncorrelated asset. Maybe that's running a cover call strategy on your equity slice. There's a lot of things that can lower your overall risk profile. And there is a level for everybody where they have enough money where they can certainly lower that risk a lot more than they are from the point where they're willing to take risk. Okay. Good evening, Steve and Justin. Dylan here. I'm calling from Oregon. I have a question about index funds and the dividends. What happens with the dividends that are issued to the fund managers, which I assume are buying the individual stocks that comprise the index? Do the fund investors ever see that money? For instance, the majority of my portfolio is lumped into Schwab's SWPPX, which tracks uh, S&P 500. And I know that a handful of stocks in that index issue dividends. Uh, could I be potentially missing out on some extra income here? Uh, thank you, and I look forward to your answer. So the dividends come into the index, okay? The dividends are paid to the index, and the net asset value, the price of that index, goes down the exact, exact amount of the amount of the dividend. So we've got a 30 cents dividend that stock, that ETF or index fund will go down that exact same amount. The same is true for stocks. If you own AT&T and they paid a 6% dividend, your stock price will go down 6%. Exactly the same amount of the dividend. Did you know that? See, some people think they can buy the stock the day before they go ex-dividend, meaning that the day before they pay the dividend, and therefore they'll make the dividend and then sell the stock, and they just made the dividend without any risk. That's wrong. When they go ex-dividend, the stock opens up at the exact amount of the dividend down on the price. Same thing would do with the, and true with the indexes. Now, now, of course, the index has the money, right? So they got to reinvest it. If you had the individual stock, you would have the money, and you could do whatever you want with it. But an index doesn't pay it out to you necessarily. You know, some of the ETFs specialize in paying it out to you, and they will, yeah, they'll, they'll pay it out to you. So it depends on, you got to know how that's 
uh, ETF or index is structured, how they do that. Our Invest Talk mission is to help you make better investing decisions. To do that on your own, thumbs up or thumbs down choices based on good, solid investing principles. But we need your questions to keep us on track. 888-99-CHART or click on Contact Steve or Contact Justin on investtalk.com. All right, let's go to Diane and Walnut Creek who wants to talk about oil stocks. Dan? Yeah, Justin, no, this is Dan. How are you doing? Doing good. Good. So I've got about $35,000 in my brokerage account, and I plan on keeping it there for about another year. And I've got about five to 6000 of that in oil-related stocks. I don't know if okay. in, spread out through about um, five stocks. So low to mid-teens. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. During this pullback, is it good, would it be a good time to add, or should I sell? I was thinking of selling, taking the profits, and putting them into like um, uh, short-term brokerage CDs. Obviously, that'd be the safer play, but I'd rather sell into strength. Uh, obviously, we've pulled back. Oil has reversed uh, kind of the entire... Hamas atrocity gains, shall we say, uh, from from what happened mid-August uh, in, in Israel. You know, a lot of that is positioning. There was a build in, in oil stocks that was unexpected, so that kind of brought prices down. You know, longer term, uh, we're still in an uptrend, um, but we are at kind of the lower end of the uptrend range. So I will say that we are kind of at support. So this wouldn't be a time to be selling, but, you know, I think this is more you're feeling that volatility. You guys remember that. So when oil stocks rally, you have to remember that's when a more advantageous time to trim and rebalance into strength as opposed to weakness. So mm-hmm. it's harder to do, right, when you're feeling good and you're making gains and it's easier to kind of make yourself feel better when there's you know, a pullback in, in particular asset classes uh, like oil, which naturally is, is, is generally volatile. volatile. Um, so it just depends on how disciplined you are. If you can be disciplined to sell on a, a, a rally, then that's probably a better way to go. Okay, great. I appreciate it. Thanks for the call. Let's go to Fred in San Diego. How are you doing, Fred? Hi. Um, I would like to know, are there any general guidelines for setting a hedge position? Take a generic one. In other words, what I'm concerned about is how to um, set those proportions. Would it have anything to do with the uh, proportion of the numeric risk at the time you set it? In other words, for example, if you want to set a um, hedge for the uh, index of the uh, S&P or the uh, NDX, how would you proportion it? For everybody else, let's make sure we understand what a hedge means. A hedge, everybody, means that you're in a position and you want to protect it from going down. Most common hedges are they're in a position, you made a lot of money, it's been going up, and you want to hedge it or hedge the whole portfolio against a fall in the market. So that means you put on positions that will go up when everything, it goes in the opposite direction is what it wants to do. So Fred's asking, well, is there rules as to how much of a hedge? Yes. In other words, uh, how much would you put into going long or short to create that hedge? Okay. Um, would it have anything to do with um, what you assess the risk, per, numeric risk at that time would be? In other words, if you assess that the numeric risk is three going long and one going short, mm-hmm. would it be have anything to do with that? There's many ways to hedge. Uh, you yeah. can hedge with options and. Oh yeah, just take a, a generic, uh, uh, you know, 
long short position okay. which can be done with the ETFs. Well, let's say you feel that the the odds of the market are going up or continuing to go up are very strong. You have to determine that by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh just say you think it's uh, 3 to 1. In that situation, you wouldn't want to put more than 25% a short position. For instance, let's say you have a portfolio of stocks that you like and you still think they're going to go up, but you're worried about the overall market. You can short the overall market but still hold on to your positions because some of them still may go up, but even though the market goes down. But how much is that is basically what you think the risk is. But uh, there's no general guidelines. No. Um, No. No. It's all individual and how much risk are you comfortable with? Okay. Thanks, Fred. Appreciate the call. Now, if you have a question about a stock or an IRA, college savings plan, well, maybe buying a house, mortgages, reverse mortgages, we're here for you. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278. You're listening to an encore presentation of Invest Talk. Please call with your questions and comments, though, 888-99-CHART, 888-99-CHART, and Steve will answer them on the next Invest Talk. Let's go to Gene in North Carolina. Hey, you doing, Gene? Hi, thanks for taking my call. I had a of question for, uh, for you and, and Luke. It, it's about inverse ETFs and maybe even the leveraged ETFs, especially from ProShares. I always seem to get a, that special K-1 tax form that's associated with them at the end of the year. Can you comment about that aspect and whether that can be something that's predicted before you buy it? I was unaware of that. That makes them even less attractive. K-1s are never fun to deal with. Luke, why would they have K-1s? Can you think of a reason why? Uh, I think it might be because the funds are generally treated as partnerships for tax purposes. Mm. So they're, I think that's they're, right. Yeah, investors are allocated a share of the fund's income, so because of that, they're going to get a K-1 at the end of the year. Now, do you know if that's all of the pro shares or just certain? Many of them, but yeah, I think that's Many correct now that I think about it. They are LPs, yes. Yeah, it might be yes. because of the structure of how they invest, because most ETFs are going to be long long or short or short things, but they tend to use a lot of options and a lot of swaps, mm-hmm. so because of that, they might not be able to register under the same ETF rules that allow for non-partnerships. Ah, gotcha. That that might make sense. Yeah, interesting. Well, That's a, a good point, Gene. <clears throat> I did not not know that um, since we don't really use them, but. Certainly, that's a factor. K-1s are, like I said, never fun, especially if they're within a particular tax-deferred account, like an IRA or a 401k. Now, I guess the positive would be they don't pay, they pay income, though, right? Typically, would they owe income if they're shorting? Well, I guess they're using swaps. Why would they get a K-1 if there's no income? I think it's generally the the structure of their investments, and they're also subject to the the sixty forty options rule. Typically, mm-hmm. where sixty percent is taxed at long term, forty percent short term, regardless of the holding period. A lot of complexity, and <clears throat> another reason to mostly stay away from them, unless you have a really specific purpose and you're willing to file a K one. A quick reminder, if there's a term that you hear mentioned on the program, but you're unclear about what it means or you have a question about it, we want you to ask. It's very likely that you're not the only one with that same question. 888-99-CHART. Hello, Noah from Hawaii. 
Thank you, first of all, for the uh, excellent, excellent podcast you put out. My goodness gracious, uh, you enrich us with your entertainment and your uh, and the education that you give us on uh, all the financial matters. Uh, thinking about uh, utilizing a certified financial planner, a fiduciary, to manage my um, my retirement funds, and I want to know the correct, proper questions to ask them to research that company or a particular company. Should I ask them about their annualized return for low, medium, and high-risk portfolios? Should I ask them about their ratings within the industry? And third, should I um, ask them about their fee structure based upon a dollar amount invested with their firm? I uh, appreciate your answer, and I listen. look forward to it. Take care, and aloha from Hawaii. Okay, CFP, Certified Financial Planners, uh, are, are a good start. But the first major question when you're talking to a financial planner is how they get paid because they're not investors they're not they don't invest things um, they more advise you what to buy and and generally they're telling you to buy insurance and buying mutual funds and buying annuities things that cost money to you but makes them high profit so that's the first most important thing in my mind is uh, uh, how he gets paid when, when uh, you know, if he if you pay him by the hour because he's giving you advice, I I'm okay, I'm okay with that, and I'm okay with him getting paid. Don't think I'm not, but a lot of times it's obscure because he's getting commissions and back end commissions from things, or he or she. Also, if they're recommending a custodian of your money, you know, like Schwab or Fidelity, Vanguard, I don't care who. Goldman Sachs, make sure it is F, uh, insured, okay? FDIC, uh, that is the insurance for banks. SIPC is insurance for um, uh, custodian of investment accounts. You want a large, safe, insured custodian. That's really important. Very, very important. Madoff. Who stole those billions of dollars? He was his his company was the custodian, and it was not insured. Okay, and of course you mentioned it. You want it. You want him to be a fiduciary. You want him to have the fiduciary responsibility. Uh, we are KPB Financial is, and that is important that you get it. So those are the kinds of questions. You know, performance. If he's a a financial planner he's not managing accounts so you know his performance would be whoever he's telling you to go to for performance whatever assets he's telling you to buy so good questions though very good questions invest talk is a trademark of kpp financial because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, Call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president, and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening, and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART. 888-99-CHART.